Welcome to the Business in Development podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Business and Development Studies at Copenhagen Business School. With this podcast, we wish to bring you the latest insights from our research on the roles of business, government and civil society in promoting inclusive and sustainable development in the global south. My name is Sarah Netta. I'm the producer of this podcast. In each episode, you will meet one of my colleagues and their guests who will present their take on pressing development issues. With this podcast, we wish to create a platform for a wide variety of actors and to combine conversations with thought leaders, practitioners, world-leading experts and voices from the field. So hi, my name is Lindsay Whitfield. I'm a professor of business and development and the co-director of uh, the Center for Business and Development Studies at Copenhagen Business School. And I'm going to host today's business and development podcast. And today I'm here with Dr. Shamane Wickbrahma-Singa. Um, and we're going to talk about the work that she has been doing uh, while she's been a postdoc at CBDS for the last six months, uh, researching apparel export industries in South Asia particularly Sri Lanka and uh, Bangladesh. But before you came to academia, you used to work in um, development in corporate sectors. So could you tell us a little bit about your background story before we get to the academic side? Um, yeah, so um, before coming to do my PhD, I worked in the corporate and development sectors for 14 years in, in some countries in South Asia and East Africa as a sustainable development professional. I have worked and consulted for HSBC, UNDP, ILO, and the Asia Foundation, among others. I have worked in the areas of gender, poverty, displacement, post-war rehabilitation, and corporate social responsibility. Through my work, I came into close contact with the apparel industry and have worked with key apparel manufacturers in Sri Lanka to deliver corporate social responsibility programs. But more importantly, having been raised in Sri Lanka, a major apparel production site in the world, my life was intimately linked with the Sri Lankan apparel industry from the outset. I grew up at a time when the industry took off in Sri Lanka and so how it transformed not only the economy and also the lives of hundreds of thousands of women. Some of them were my friends whom I grew up with and played during the formative years of my life. After high school, I also worked in a garment factory in an administrative capacity for 11 months. So while I have now done academic research in the industry for seven years, my interest in the apparel industry is also very much shaped by this very personal connection I have with the industry. So today we're going to be talking a bit about your work on um, informal workers or migrant workers in Sri Lanka apparel factories. How did you come to be interested in the aspect of informal workers? Actually, I got to know about informal workers indirectly. Uh, during my PhD fieldwork in 2019, 
I, I thought that uh, there was a paradox in the way informality is organized in the Sri Lankan apparel industry. I saw two different labor regimes in, in, in the shop floors, one for formal workers and one for informal workers. Informal workers lived under extremely precarious conditions, so I wanted to know more about them. And I also didn't quite buy the mainstream narrative of informality, so I wanted to look into it more. And during my postdoc years, I did more research on informality. I also consulted for a think tank in Sri Lanka that investigated the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on informal workers. So, yeah, so I just wanted to know more about how this informality is organized in the free trade zones and how it affects mm. workers. But you, you mentioned you didn't really buy the mainstream view of informality. For our listeners who probably don't know what that means, could you just explain what is the mainstream view of informality? And is this in general or particular to apparel export industries? Um, yeah, so in the Sri Lankan apparel industry, informality is considered a choice. A choice that women, especially women, make. So I and also the way that informality is defended or explained in the Sri Lankan apparel industry is always tied to the labor shortage. Industry authorities and government authorities would always say that informality is there because there is a labor shortage. Okay, so let's stop back. Maybe we got a bit of ahead of, ahead of ourselves and for the those who are listening, just to define informality so that we're, you know, we're clear what we're talking about. What is the difference between a formal worker and an informal worker? So the informal workers are not registered. They come to the factory on a daily basis and they are recruited through manpower agencies. So when you say they're not registered, what does that mean? They're not formal employees of the factory. You know, the, when, when, when you recruit people, workers to the factory, they don't have contracts, and these contracts are open-ended, usually. And they're also given all sorts of benefits over time, incentives, production benefits, security, and etc. Yeah. So without a contract, it means that if there are any national labor laws that relate to hiring and firing, these are not applying to no. them because they don't have contracts, so yeah. they can be easily fired. This yes. is one of the yeah. implications. Yeah. Okay. And they have no security in terms of how long they will be working. They could no. just be told the next day that they're not needed anymore. Yes, that's the thing. So that they are they're not directly hired by the factory. They are hired through manpower agencies in Sri Lanka. In other words, labor market intermediaries. But are they paid directly by the factory? They're not paid directly by the factory. So they're factories. paid by the agency. They are paid by the agency. Sometimes factories have long-term contra- contracts with the agency to supply workers and every morning agencies would send these workers to these different factories and then agencies would tell them how much you are going to get today and then workers would get paid at the end of the day. And agencies also do not have formal contracts with these workers. And then in addition to that, being an informal worker, if you have no contract and you're not formally hired by the company, then you don't have social benefits. What, mm. what would be, if you were a formal worker in the Sri Lankan garment industry, what would be the social benefits that you are entitled to? And Sri Lankan labor laws are very strong. Mm. So when it comes to formal work, 
And Sri Lanka has defined labor laws which impose minimum wages, maximum working hours, health and safety, and the provision of statutory benefits. And they also have employees' provident fund also, and, and, you know, other stuff. The Sri Lankan government and manufacturers are serious in their commitment to uphold these labor laws in comparison to the rest of the region. And these labor laws are the result of historically Sri Lanka had strong labor laws because we are a social, we are a welfare state and so on. So it is these standards that have also earned Sri Lanka as the reputation as an ethical source in destination for apparel in the world. Mm. So the formal workers have very strong legal coverage in Sri Lanka. But none of these apply to the informal workers. So as way of a background, just to understand how important this issue is, like how much of those who are currently, what percentage of those currently working in factories do you estimate are informal workers? Yeah, so... Or are there any estimates of this? So the exact statistics are not available, but research conducted by the Institute of Policy Studies in 2016 found that around 17% of the garment factory jobs were unfilled at that time. Trade unions told me that this number increased to 20% by early 2019. So this meant out of around 350,000 garment factory jobs, around 70,000 were vacant at that time. And local civil society organizations told me that in the Katunayaka free trade zone alone, there are about 3,000 shortages every day. But again, these numbers are not empirically verified. Mm. And you ask me about number of informal workers, but I'm talking about why I'm talking about this shortages. Mm. Informal workers are required. right. So this yeah. is when you said yeah. that there is a link to the labor market and to labor shortages. Mm. This is where yeah the link is. So that's sort of what we might call in economics the demand side. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the supply side and who are the workers who? decide to. You said also the critique of the mainstream view is that there's a choice. So there's a demand and there's a shortage and workers come in to fill that shortage and it's their choice. But you're saying that choice maybe is a little bit too simplistic. So can you tell us more about who these workers are and how they come to be at this worker agency where they are filling this, you know, 3,000 worker shortage So as I said, that informality in the sector is often framed as a choice, an act of agency that workers exercise in choosing when and when not to work. Initially, I saw it this way too. This is also how informality is defended by government and industry authorities in Sri Lanka. To abolish informality, they say, would be to take that choice away from workers. And this is true up to a point. I found that some workers, especially women, prefer informal work over regular work because informal work gives them the opportunity to earn wages every day instead of once a month. This was useful when they needed money on a daily basis for their children's schooling and care responsibilities. Also, informal workers are in control of their own working time to a certain degree. For example, in any given day, if they did not feel like working, they had the option of not going to work. 
So this choice of informal work is somewhat ingrained in the desire to have a greater control of their working bodies and the need to avoid exploitative labor regimes. That being said, um, having conducted further research on this during the last two years, I have to admit that I'm not convinced that informality is entirely a choice. Not least because informality is highly gendered in the Sri Lankan apparel industry with over 80% of the labor force being female. The way I see it, yes, informality is a choice, but it is a choice for lack of choices. Exercised out of women's need to struggle, work and household responsibilities. Particularly, women's role in the household as primary caregivers and homemakers has defined the conditions under which a woman can enter into the labor force. So in making these choices, women often have to consult with their husbands and relatives, mm. prioritize the needs and wants of their husbands, families and children. So women's choices in this context are heavily constrained by male control and articulated through gendered norms of what is appropriate work. So for example, as I said, the majority of the women preferred informal work because of the ability to take a leave on a certain day. This can be interpreted even simplified as women exercising their agency to decide when to work. But this is not always the case. Several of my respondents said that they were employed as regular workers before, but opted for informal work after giving birth to take care of their babies. Okay, so that's why I wanted to ask, you know, these informal women workers, they're obviously not in the normal or formal market, you know, labor market. When we hear there are labor shortages, you assume that yeah. that's because there aren't enough workers yeah. anymore in Sri Lanka yeah. or there are new yeah. economic opportunities yeah. which pay better, as we've seen in Vietnam, so then apparel factories can't actually hire the number of workers that they want mm. because formal workers have other choices. But then if we say, oh, but over here there's another pool of labor that can come and fill these jobs, then we have to ask ourselves, well, why are those workers, and here they're predominantly women, not choosing to participate in the formal labor market? And you're saying it's because given their duties as wives and mothers, they're not able to fill the responsibilities of a, of a formal worker? Or how, how would you explain why, why they are not in the formal labor market? Yeah, it is partly because of their household responsibilities. It's the patriarchal expectations. But it is also partly the way that the industry and the, and the production regime is organized at the workplace. Could you tell us, for those who are not so familiar with apparel industries like you and I are. Can you explain what, what are these you know, expected responsibilities in, a, in an apparel export factory? I presume overtime and long working hours? Yes, and also uh, there are no leaves, holidays. There are no holidays in Sri Lanka. Well, there are holidays in Sri Lanka. So no paid. There no pay the labor law doesn't have paid No, holidays? they do. That's the thing. This uh. is the thing, right? So they do. Um, so... In the private sector, you you can have 21 paid days mm. and 14 sick days. But I'm yet to hear an apparel worker who are ab who is able to take that leave. 
Really? But you said that the labor law was strong and has strong supports in enforcement, which is more important than what's actually written on the paper by yeah. manufacturers and governments. Yeah. So I, then that surprised me that these things on paper are not actually uh, observed in, in practice. I ask because I've been doing some work on, on, on Madagascar for the ILO, and Madagascar is one of the poorest countries in the world um, with the new World Bank absolute poverty line. 80% of the population lives in absolute poverty. So it's extremely poor. Um, but what we saw in some of the survey data we were looking at is that Madagascar also has a strong labor code for historical reasons coming out of, probably I would expect, coming out of the socialist period. And then these rules kind of just stay on, on paper. But they're actually enforced, which I think is very interesting. So, but they were enforced in exporting firms and not domestic market firms. But there, when you look at what at least the workers said in the survey, that they were allowed to take leave. They did take paid leave and public holidays, and they were paid. And they even have leave for maternity mm-hmm. for a certain amount of time. But of course, as in many countries, they always have also have the option to have leave that they don't take converted into pay. Mm-hmm. So I was actually quite uh, surprised. I don't understand yet why this is the case. <laughs> I'm still doing research. But then when you said Sri Lanka has a strong labor law, and then you say, but you don't see workers taking this leave, is that because they don't want to? Do they convert it into pay? Or um, are there cultural no, norms think, kind of structuring yeah, and, and, and it? And that, that's, that's really a good, good point. Yes, um, labor laws are really... Yeah, Sri Lanka has strong labor laws, and I would also said that relatively, relative to other countries, they are they're quite good in terms of labor standards. But yeah, the, the leave, taking a leave has always been difficult in the, in the industry. It is, and, and for many reasons, it is also because this whole idea of leave and holidays, they are tied to financial incentives, mm. right? So they have, uh, most factories have attendance bonuses, mm. which is like about... Uh, 15% of their salary, oh, wow. right? So if you if you don't, if you take a leave for whatever the reason, you don't get this bonus. Ah, so they don't, they don't yeah. count um, recognized leave in the attendance bonus. Yes, okay. and, and also the way the production lines are organized, in most factories, the targets are given to the line. Mm. So you are responsible for the line's performance. Oh. You are obliged to come to work every day and even when you take a break for lunch or or to go to the washroom you have to minimize those breaks otherwise what happens is not the management but your co-workers would be angry with you that's interesting i hadn't thought about that before because just to tell the listeners um the way that uh, performance incentives are given can vary a lot by countries by factories and by factories and countries, so it can be given to the individual if they meet their target for the day, or it can be given to the line. Mm-hmm. So in this case, it, predominantly in Sri Lankan factories, you would say it's, it's given by the line yes, to I, make them work together. Yes, and I think this is also another strategy of managers ensuring that work, workers fall in line, and they do it by, by not doing it themselves, but... By peer pressure amongst yeah, their peer colleagues. Yeah, peer pressure. Okay. So this... I, I can't say if this is predominantly the case, but I, uh, from what I have seen, this is very much common. Okay, so this, uh, these, all these like daily shop floor practices actually have knock-on effects up mm-hmm. from the micro level up to, in a way, the meso level in terms mm-hmm. of 
women's choices to yeah. to work yeah. um, as a formal worker or an informal worker, just to bring us back to where we were before, because yeah. having to be at the factory every day and, it, and, is and a constraint a for them. Uh, what I know is in Sri Lanka is also, it is frustrating for workers to go and ask for a leave. Mm. They, even though they are entitled for the leave, they when they go to the managers and they ask for the leave, they have to give all sorts of reasons. And if they take a leave, sick leave, without informing the factory, when they come, so they have to face the consequences. The managers would scold them, and of course they are going to lose financial incentives, etc. So taking taking a leave, entire effort is too much. Mm. So they prefer then what they see as the flexibility of informal yeah. work? Yes. So this is what this woman said, that uh, there's this one, two women actually who were sick. They had chronic illnesses. So when they wanted to go to uh, the the doctor, they weren't allowed to do that because they they said it was very difficult to take a leave. And this actually, we saw this happening during the pandemic because pandemic was very well under control in Sri Lanka in 2020. Sri Lanka did a pretty good job, actually. But, of course, with lots of police curfew and all sorts of, you know, strict laws. But by by September, October, September, I would think, there, are, there were zero cases in Sri Lanka. There were no cases. So but Sri Lankan people went through this, how do I say, this period of bliss, without any worry about the pandemic because there were no cases in the community. And then suddenly, this one day, this was reported. Wow. So if we go back to sort of what um, you did, a quite significant uh, amount of, of research on informal workers and the apparel industries in, in Sri Lanka. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you conducted that research? Yeah, was it easy to, to talk to these women? How many did you talk to? What did you find out from their perspectives? I mean, you've given us a couple of examples of particular cases, but looking at, yeah, the evidence yes, I, as a whole. I conducted, actually, research on informal workers before and after the pandemic. So before the pandemic, I think I, w- I would say about 50 people I would have spoken to through focus group discussions. And then after the pandemic, I have spoken to about, again, 40 people. So that's all through focus group discussions. And then I also have these access networks where I, I know some workers personally, so I would call them sometimes, so they would call me. And then I often relied on local civil society organizations run by women to access these workers. So I cannot really exactly, uh, because these are all qualitative mm-hmm. research and focus group discussions, but I cannot really tell you a number and say, because I didn't honestly, this for this report, it was like a very limited number of workers. I would think it's about 40 people. But often I would meet them and I would talk to them. I would meet them because I, 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 I sometimes go, go to trade union events and I, I also go to different functions and then I, I I talk to them. So it's all formal and informal interviews and discussions that I've had with them. Yes. So from based on um, these discussions, that's where you can identify some of the key reasons mm-hmm. they say they would rather be in yeah. informal uh, labor market with no contracts and flexibility as opposed to um, 
a formally hired because it's not a if they wanted to be a formal worker that that possibility is there right no no it's not for some it's not there and this is the thing so these some garment factories some manpower agencies they have agreements with garment factories that garment factories would not hire these workers permanently one garment factory it's in my phd thesis and they told me if we take these workers we will have to face the consequences then the manpower agency will not send us uh, workers for our labor shortages so there are agreements that they will not so even if they if if the factory wants to hire these workers they are not free to do so and some workers um, say that when they are when they reach 50 they cannot enter the formal labor force in sri lanka like in in, in the industry Mm. because up until recently the industry let go of people over 50 certain garment factories so what happens is that you retire from this one and then you come back to the same factory as an informal worker so it's okay for them to you know, it, it's strange isn't it? like the factory is fine for them to be informal workers over 50 but they don't want formal workers to be over 50 but that sounds like these are ways in which factories in collusion with worker Uh, employment agencies are reducing the cost of labor yes and transferring the responsibility to workers but that's a little bit of a, a a paradox because here they face a labor shortage which in traditional labor market economics should lead to greater bargaining power by the worker mm-hmm. one would think in a labor shortage workers should have more power they should be able to negotiate higher wages but rather what we're seeing here is a very paradoxical situation in which a labor shortage leads to informality which is basically the reduction of the cost of labor for factories how do you make sense of that <laughs> yes and and i this is why i think it works for them it works, works for factories factories and i again i don't want to generalize there are really good factories in sri lanka who wouldn't do that but then again you have 450 factories and we are a key apparel production site but i would think that it's profitable for them because see there are no legal responsibilities for these workers and they don't have to no matter some workers end up working for 11 to 13 hours so if you are a formal worker then you get overtime after 9 hours but this won't and then ep employees provident fund gratuity and bonuses none of these are available for these workers so it makes it very profitable for garment factories to employ informal workers because it is less responsibility and less costly but i'm still puzzled about how this came about i mean i'm not saying they engineered this situation they probably just realized it was there and began to take advantage of it but how how do you understand through your research how the situation emerged as it is now do you look back at how the um, employment agencies were created or yeah so actually there was a labor shortage in sri lanka i think there still is but not that yeah, the, and it not has that led, the rate it is oh, being is because this? i know it's led that's what was a primary driving force yeah. of sri lankan firms to have their first yes. transnational factories yes. in mm. ethiopia which yeah. i have worked on there quite a number and in kenya um when you talk to them why do you invest they also mention not just high wages 
but actual labor shortage. Yeah. Um, but this labor shortage actually happened because in Sri Lanka, garment factory jobs are sti uh, stigmatized. Yes. So uh, there was this really very popular term called Juki Girls. Yes, yeah. And if you are a garment factory worker, you are most of garment factory workers, especially in the free trade zones, are looked down upon, if, if I may say. They, they, they are, how do I say, they are referred to as bad women. Free trade zone is referred to as the se uh, love zone. And yeah, you know, like that, horse on and you know, like that. So they think that garment factory workers, because Sri Lanka also has this traditional concept that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. So and they think that garment factory workers have sex before marriage and because of abortions and all sorts of issues that, that have been happening in the industry. So in fact, during the early days, the government was criticized of you know, having this industry which corrupts mm. young women in Sri Lanka. So this, this how do I say, this rep bad reputation Nobody won't, like, if, if you can have another job, you would rather do that than going into the garment industry. So I have had manuf manufacturers and, and government officers telling me that they now actually opt for retail, hospitality, and different sectors because they think that being a garment worker somehow devalues mm. their, them. Yeah. But before the current economic crisis that Sri Lanka finds itself in, were there, were there enough growth in other industries and sectors so that women could find employment? I mean, that would, that's what normally drives a labor shortage in apparel export. Um, or, was, or would you say in this case it was more driven by this um, bad reputation? Um, no, actually, uh Retail sector, there was a growth in the retail se sector and hospitality mm, okay. sector and also medica medical care. So they had other Private options. hospitals and okay. other ho yeah, hospitals. So I, and also like Sri Lankan literacy rate is over 90%. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. So they are pretty educated. Even, even people who work in the industry, uh, most of them have completed their A-levels. So, and also uh, some people, some told me that the most young women now like to do these cosmetics and, you know, small businesses like um, mm. Sri Lanka has a big yeah. market for um, how do I say, makeup and yeah. hair, hairdressing and all, all kind bridal dressing and all kinds of things. So they enter that, that market also, that, that sector also, they have salons. Some people like start their own little salons. But so it's even more paradoxical then that you have a labor shortage which has an element of being driven by the fact that people don't want to work in apparel export industries because of the bad reputation it gives them as women, as young women. And somehow that leads to more exploitation. <laughs> And by in, of informal workers who are then sent in to fill in these these labor shortages. Yeah, the industry. I mean, I, I must give credit to the industry. Actually, they have been trying for the last ten years to raise the profile 
okay. of these workers. Yeah. There have been campaigns to say that they are the lifeblood of the Sri Lankan economy and how important their work is. So industry has been constantly trying to attract workers and they were trying to do their very best to, how do I say, eliminate this, this bad reputation. But yes, that is on, on one hand. On the other hand, the fact that it is not working and the fact that the informality is still there, in fact it is growing, mm. leads to more exploitation because of the loopholes and gaps in, in regulations and enforcement of labor standards. And so do the women that you interviewed in the focus groups and through participant observation, do they, do they only see this as a good thing because of the flexibility or do they also see the negative sides of their informal work? What do they talk about most when you... I think uh, during, before the pandemic, with me at least they didn't, but after the pandemic, they started seeing it for what it is. So and why do you think that shift happened? What specific... Because of the way they were treated during the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and what happened specifically? Okay, so what happened was that during the pandemic, uh, neither manufacturers no labor market intermediaries took the responsibility for informal workers. Mm. For example, uh, to manage the impact on, on apparel workers, the industry established a tripartite action committee with representatives of the government, manufacturers and workers. So one of the directives of this committee was to make a monthly payment of 14,500 Sri Lankan rupees or $40 or 50% of the last drawn gross salary of workers who were temporarily terminated because we had lockdowns for three to two months, two to three months, and we had about three lockdowns, I think. So the committee also negotiated with manufacturers not to terminate any worker due to the pandemic. But informal workers were not covered under these agreements because they did not belong to the factory. So most informal workers were laid off without any compensation by the factories as soon as the pandemic hit the country. And they were also not able to access the healthcare facilities made available for regular mm. workers, like PCR testing, vaccination, assistance with treatments once infected with COVID, etc. Yeah, so the, what happened then was that women who chose informal workers for the flexibility, they soon started to realize how precarious this situation is. So the freedom to take leave had limitations, right? <laughs> a self-prescribed holiday was only practical as long as they had cash or their husbands earned. But their husbands were also like handymen and carpenters. They also lost their jobs during the pandemic. So this meant women became the sole breadwinners of their families in addition to being the primary caregiver. But there were no jobs then because they were informal workers, informal factories had downsized, so informal work was not available at that time. Mm. So I don't know if you've been following it still, but if you have, I mean, what would you say then is the situation now? So if they have realized the sort of problematic aspects of, you know, being an informal worker, has that had any effect on the supply of labor in the informal market? That I don't know. Okay. I, I need to, it is kind of a good question. <laughs> but the problem is now we have another problem yes. in Sri Lanka. <laughs> right. 
So, yeah, so then we see the same pattern being continued. Mm. So the informal workers are, again, there is work in the industry, but apparently they are not hiring anymore. The factories aren't hiring because hiring. of the... They have also the... laid off some, they have made it very difficult for apparel workers, some workers to continue working as formal workers. And so they are not hiring in any workers anymore. Okay, so as, as a consequence of the national economic crisis at the moment, the factories yeah. are sort of down, downsizing or reducing orders? I wouldn't necessarily say they are downsizing. This is the other, other problem that the industry has performed really well in spite of the economic crisis. There was, of, of course, also about like 5 to 6% growth. So they, during the pandemic, there was a little, how do I say, the industry was a little slow. But 2022, now mm, we see that across it's performing the board, yeah. very well. But then you, sorry, I thought downsizing because you said that they were letting go some workers. Yes. So that, one, the two are not related. So this is the thing. So this, these questions I need to ask um, again. But what I heard was that because the, what happens is now, see, the, I felt like that this, I'm not necessarily referring to a certain factory, but I feel that like that manufacturers they can some they are somehow making use of this pandemic and economic crisis to reduce the compensation and benefits for workers uh, so, so not the, reduce the number of workers but reduce the cost of labor this is the capitalist system right so when it when disruptions happen when change when when changes happen to the structures so they somehow manipulate the structures and they somehow use these disruptions in a way that they would somehow emerge. Mm. But the labor market it, may also be changing because in national crisis, um, maybe some of the jobs that were there before are not there. So the, the labor supply actually increases. Um, or we don't know that. No, I don't know that. But what I know is that... Okay, so what the trade union said was that factories have not permanently terminated workers, but they have created situations where workers decided not to report to work. And some factories said no transport because usually factories give transport. Now they're not providing transport. They used to give breakfast. Now they're providing breakfast. And now they're not providing overtime, no attendance bonuses. So most of these female workers are migrant workers and they are from villages. So they are not able to manage without the reduced income. So I have heard stories where some of these workers have gone back to their villages because working in the industry was no longer financially viable. Mm. So uh, what this union, trade union, this is, these are not my findings. I was speaking to a trade union recently and he was telling me the factories are creating these conditions. So workers mm. will voluntarily resign. It's not termination. It's not downsizing. It's just that, yeah. Mm. But in the... Previous, in the context of previous labor shortages, why would they want some workers to resign? And this is why I'm skeptical about the labor shortage and the extent of it. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, these are really good questions that I need. <laughs> For follow-up research. Okay, one last question. I know we had talked about before... Um, or, or you, you mentioned that you know you have a background in working in, in CSR, corporate social responsibility, and of course global apparel brands and retailers have on paper, you know, really strong codes of conduct and labor standards. Uh, many of which say they would not allow, they would not buy from factories 
that have informal labor. So I guess the question that comes up is, do brands know about informality or the extent of informality in Sri Lankan factories? But maybe before that, for the listeners, if you could say, if they don't know anything about Sri Lanka's apparel export industry, who are some of the major brands and retailers that source from Sri Lanka? Just so we know who we're talking about. So Sri Lanka works with uh, Gap, H&M, JCPenney, Next, PVH, Nike, Primark, and all these high street brands. But Sri Lanka is also a niche production site for Victoria's Secret. Right, yeah. Going back to the beginning. So a lot of these brands have, or all of them should have, codes of conduct. I know I've read PVH's code of conduct, which is like super thick, and supposedly have regulations that factories meet certain labor standards. Which then leads to this question I asked a minute ago, that do brands know about this extent of informality and the worker, the employment agencies that factories are using? Well, it's hard not to notice (laughs) informality in the apparel industry, considering the strict ethical codes. But how do they know? A worker in a line looks like a worker, right? How How would brands know if that worker is an informal worker or not. I have spoken to a few brands and I also spoken to auditors. So auditing, auditing is how they would know, Auditing is how they would know. Mm -hmm. So yes, so when when the auditors check records and there are workers, like say there are like about 1,000 workers but you only have records of 500 workers. Mm -hmm. So then, contracts, then yeah. you would ask these questions, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. So what they told me, some brands do not allow informal workers and some brands, if they allow informal workers, then they would want factories to make sure that these workers are paid well and they have been given the same benefits that the other workers are given and this, this code should apply to them. But this is actually being violated. One manager told me that when we take these workers, we don't need to follow bias rules to court him. So I think that he was misunderstood. I don't think that that was the case. But the problem is that on the brand side, some of them do not know what is happening on the ground. And some of them, like, I don't know if they do know, if they actually really care about. So, but it is easy for them to remain ignorant or not know about these things because of the way supply chains are organized, Mm. right? So they do not own the factories and they do not own the labor force. These products are being made. And on the other hand, monitoring of ethical codes on the ground is often carried out by third-party auditors. So given brands are not directly involved with monitoring and the compliance or the enforcement, so there is a risk that not a risk, there mm-hmm. is a possibility that they would not know about this. I mean, they're not involved in the auditing, but they should be involved in the enforcement. How? With Even when they use third party. Because the third party does the audit and gives the audit to the buyer. Yes. Then it's the buyer's responsibility to, to see, is the, are there any violations here? But I think where the problem comes up and I, I've seen this in Ethiopia, so I don't. But I don't know to what extent. But I assume it's buyer practice because the buyers are global. 
what happens when you have a violation is they don't stop sourcing right away. They use a warning system mm -hmm. and they use a dialogue system. Mm -hmm. So, okay, you have a violation. So what are we going to do about that? What's our plan of action? And, and then the supplier actually has a long time frame in which mm -hmm. to rectify this. And that's in both of their interests because mm -hmm. the buyer doesn't want to stop sourcing right away if they already have orders mm -hmm. you know, in, lined up mm -hmm. and, and the factory doesn't either. But that kind of allows a system for mm -hmm. not really acting or slow acting. So do maybe they use this way But then they'd actually have to acknowledge that there is a violation with informality. Yes, uh, what the auditors told me was that they would make a comment on the audit report. So, but they weren't able to clarify what commenting means. Hmm. Yeah, so that, that, that it felt like that it, it would end there. And what about, so you mentioned before you, you work a lot with this civil society organizations in, in Sri Lanka. And I know there's been some discussion in the literature on CSR, and also I've seen this in Ethiopia with a, a buyer who will remain unnamed. <laughs> But sometimes they don't actually act on these violations until they're made public or they're publicized mm -hmm. by international mm -hmm. organizations like Workers' Rights Consortium mm -hmm. and others who will do a big big article and then maybe that article will be picked up by the New York Times or something and then they'll get bad PR and then they'll go in and look yeah. at what's going on. So you're right that, you know, buyers don't necessarily act on violations in an audit that nobody else yeah. uh, sees. So mm, given that, we know that could, could be the case. Our civil society organizations, international organizations doing any publicity around informality to make buyers like... They do. Most civil society, some civil society organizations and trade unions are working with buyers and they're also working with the Clean Clothes Campaign yeah, clean clothes, yeah. and Asia Flow Wage Alliance. So I'm pretty sure that these things get known. But I also think that, you know, in Sri Lanka, it's, it's all relative, right? It's a degree of violation mm. that you would see, right? So if it is Bangladesh or India, it, it's at a different scale. So in Sri Lanka, I mean, because of the sheer size of the industry, size as well compared. as the degree of violation, ah, there's okay, abuse. The like yeah. if you really look at Bangladesh, Bangladesh doesn't have informality, by the way. So, but the there's a lot of abuse going on in Bangladesh. But they also don't have st strong labor laws to violate. So, <laughs> true. informality is relative to yeah. the labor law, right? <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah. So the, I mean, the general. Even if you talk to a buyer today, they, the general, they, they would say that Sri Lanka is a really good production site. Yes, they think that. They want that. Yeah, <laughs> so they think that. So I wonder if this reputation is actually responsible for hmm. much of what is going on in down there. And I really want to, this is something that I really want to look at. I know Kanchana Ruanpura has done some work on this, but I really want to know why it is possible for Sri Lanka to maintain this, this ethical re reputation as an ethical sourcing destination. When, when you look at certain labor standards, the way that certain workers are exploited, it's, uh, I can't reconcile these two. Yeah. So those who don't know, 
maybe just in, as the last point, you could say a little bit about exactly this, that Sri Lanka is known as an ethical mm -hmm. sourcing location. And increasingly now, they also want to be known as uh, sustain environmentally sustainable. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the sort of industry mm -hmm. business strategy mm -hmm. to differentiate themselves from other yeah. sourcing yeah. locations. Mm -hmm. So how long, ha I can't remember going back to when, since when they've had this sort of Green brand. Focus. It's a brand, yeah. really a brand reputation, yeah. a brand for the country as yeah. ethical. When did that, do you remember when it started? I think it probably started in the early 1980s because when oh, that, that was a, yeah, okay. yeah because that was a time when industry took over in South Asia. Yeah. But at that time in early 1980s, Bangladesh literacy rate was about 18 percent. Mm. Ours was about 85 percent. Okay. So that that is where that the the labor standards and social welfare indicators made made a difference to what buyers think, how buyers perceive these two production sites, and also the fact that we are a welfare state, and. So we also have very strong social and human development indicators. So these these contributed to this perception that Sri Lanka Sri Lankan labor laws are also strong in books. That what is happening on the ground is how do I say that we are upheld in the same standards in the factories, mm. and some factories actually do up, uphold these standards. So I think, and then in 1990s, uh, when the ethical codes were introduced by by brands, Sri Lanka was one of the first countries to adopt those. We already had very strong labor standards. So there was less resistance to the transition in Sri Lanka to ethical yeah. codes. So yeah. ethical codes actually acted as complementary to the national labor regulations. So, and the buyers could, brands could see this and they knew that when they do their audits and when they come and see the factories, they were already in good conditions. And our factories are all like, all like most of our factories are like one floor. We don't the have standard, multi, the yeah, standard, standard good practice and now. very yeah. very good uh, health health oh, and safety yeah. standard. But presumably, these achievements in in the Sri Lankan industry were also possible because of not just the laws and regulations on paper, but their enforcement mm. or presumed enforcement yeah. or penalties by the state. So the role of the state is really important here. Mm. So how do you explain that with informality? Are they not, is the state not cracking down on that? Uh, Are they not enforcing their own labor standards? I would say it's a tension between the national regulatory labor frameworks and the local labor markets. So it's a two scales. Mm. Right, so the national regulatory framework is very, very, very strong, and I would say Sri Lankan, Sri, Sri Lankan government is quite relatively very serious, and manufacturers are also quite serious. But there is there is space for exploitation at the local labor markets. So what the government says is that it is difficult to regulate the informal sector because they cannot trace the employer because employee is not registered. Okay, can you explain that? And are we talking more in the rural areas or in urban areas? Because in urban areas, you should be able to trace it, right? Or Yeah, but the thing is that ours is a central government, mm. right? So even, even if it is urban areas, export processing zones, it is like a locality. Okay. Right? So, 
and sometimes the department of labor they told me they cannot enter the export epz mm. without the approval of the board of investment even to ins- inspect the factories but then how would they enforce how did they enforce other labor laws and codes because this is what i'm telling you they mm. see more than the enforcement is the commitment i would say that manufacturers are committed to the so basic labor laws so it's been more manufacturer laws. commitment than state enforcement Probably. i'm seeing that's what you're yeah, saying yeah 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 i would say so i would say because they were committed because that was yeah. how they were marketing yeah. the the industry yeah, exactly. to the global buyers yes you're right mm yeah. that's interesting manufacturers are committed to enforce the basic labor laws and they are i mean this is this is what i think yeah. not because i'm from sri lanka yeah. but this is what i see So I think that there are some really interesting still open questions about then in particular have have the apparel firms changed their position somewhat mm-hmm. or their commitment somewhat and mm-hmm. why I think that's still an open question that that would be interesting. Yeah. Interesting for further research. Yes and and then I also want to finally say that I am not saying that this is mm-hmm. manufacturer's responsibility. This is a this is a construct of i mean this is how the local social spaces are organized the lives how how workers especially there what they think and what the expectations this is more like i think it's a collection of several factors yeah yeah i think one of the issues that brings up is in all countries the labor force is known to be predominantly women in apparel factories um and young women but actually that is related to the age of the industry mm-hmm. because they're young at first yeah. but often factories in the end actually they want loyalty because yeah. once they've trained labor that's a sunk cost they don't sure. actually want them yeah. to leave in some places they say at the beginning in Ethiopia oh they'll leave when they get 21 but i think we see in places like Madagascar that actually women have stayed working there for quite a while and also risen somewhat in 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 the hierarchy and that's trained labor that firms you know they don't mm-hmm. they don't want to lose but the life circumstances of women also change yes um do. i know you're familiar, familiar with uh, ching kwan lee's work but i think not the one where she compared hong kong mm-hmm. like the same kind of electronics manufacturer in hong mm-hmm. kong and in shenzhen and that they had to create different labor regimes because yeah. the women were different age they were older in hong kong and they were had families and they had different needs to have flexibility in the workday. So maybe what we need to see in Sri Lanka is a sort of changing of the labor regime that is yes. more flexible to allow for mature yes. women with families um yes. as opposed to this non-stop excessive overtime that you see maybe in the in the, in the Chinese factories at mm-hmm. an earlier period. It's also an interesting case, no? It keeps, it it tells us how the supply chains are changing. Mm. and changed by workers themselves and changed by workers themselves and on that note we will end today's podcast thank you so much for joining us today to thank talk you. about your research it's a pleasure to be here <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you wish to stay in the loop or participate in our podcast, please subscribe to the Business and Development Podcast on your usual platform or contact me, Sarah Netta.